the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a fabulous Saturday and a fabulous week and a fabulous month. Uh, Thank you again for joining us. If you have just tuned in, this is Let Us Reason. I'm your host, Al Fadi. And today, uh, we have kind of like a special topic that I like just to uh, discuss with you. And uh, uh, maybe later on this year, we will uh, revisit this topic in a, uh, in a more kind of a detailed, in-depth uh, series. In uh, one of my recent posts on uh, my Facebook page, which is, by the way, for those of you who are unaware of it, I have a number of Facebook pages, but I have a personal one, and then I have a ministry pages. So the ministry page is Sira International. That's C as in Charlie, Sira International. And uh, my own pers- uh, also uh, ministry page. It's called The Al-Fadi, T as in Tom, H as in Henry, E as in Elephant, which is the definite article, The Al-Fadi, one word, A-L-F as in Frank, A-D-I, D as in David, I. But I have my personal page on Facebook, which is alfadi.sira, alfadi.sira, and again, Sira with a C as in Charlie. Usually, I post a lot of uh, questions or challenges or what I call dilemmas uh, on my personal page, and I share my videos and other things on the other uh, pages as well. This time, I wanted to bring awareness to my Muslim friends and to those of you at large who are tracking, uh, basically, with me, something about the history of the 1924 Quranic edition uh, known as the Cairo edition. Now, here's what I mean by that. If you meet any Muslim, and I you know, I was one of them when I was growing up, believing that the Quran we have in our hand today is the exact replica of the Quran that is found in heaven and the same replica of the Quran revealed from heaven to the Prophet of Islam starting in 610 AD until he died in 632. So over the course of 23 years, between 610 AD until 632, He, the Prophet, was receiving these revelations from the copy of the Quran that is found in heaven from God directly through the angel Gabriel, who was reciting passages to the Prophet. He would memorize them and then recite them to others, and they would memorize them. And then at a later point, after his death in 632, it became basically necessary for the first Caliph, Abu Bakr, to collect the Quran as a whole, as a codex, as a mushaf, as a book in writing. Now, it did exist at that time 
uh, in a written form, but not as a book, basically. It was written either on pieces of papyrus fragments, you know, bones and, and the likes. But it wasn't collected. I mean, every person wrote whatever they can memorize. Uh, there is this claim that a number of the scholars, uh, the scribes, I should say, with the Prophet, has their own mushaf or codex. Uh, one of them is named Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. The other one is Ubay ibn Kaab. But even with those traditions, we know that these two scribes in particular, who were the closest to the Prophet as he was revealing these passages to them, they were writing it down, uh, supposedly, uh, they have different number of chapters and different way of reading, you know, different way of reading the scripture. Uh, in other words, uh, Abdullah Mas'ud has, for instance, uh, one um, uh, claim has 111 chapters. The other one has 112. Um, in uh, the case of um, Obai, he has 116. Today's Quran has 114 chapters. So you get the idea. Is one of them was missing two or three chapters. The other one has two extra chapters. Now, it's kind of interesting. Supposedly, these two are uh, a, you know, part of a close circle um, of scribes around Muhammad. So as he was revealing to them, they were writing down. So it makes you wonder, if one of them wrote down 116 chapters, doesn't that mean that he heard 116 chapters and wrote it down? And was, was that only uh, what he heard? What if there was more, but he missed it, you know? What about the one who wrote 111 chapters or 112, that's Ibn Mas'ud? Doesn't that mean that he ignored the other additional chapters as if they were not revelations? That was his argument. So, in this case, Obay, who added more and ended up with 116 chapters, that means he added more words to the Quran that were not actually a revelation. So, you see what's going on. Now, this story, by the way, that I shared with you, is based on, for instance, the biography of Muhammad, which was written about 130 years after the death of Muhammad, and then most of it was lost, and then uh, that was Ibn Ishaq, basically. Then his student, Ibn Hisham, came back later and rewrote it and expanded it. By about, uh, at that time, it was 180 years after the death of Muhammad. So all of it, obviously, was based on oral transmission in general. And then it's based also on stories that are found in hadith, like Sahih Bukhari, which was written 240 years after the, the death of Muhammad. So, so you can see why there is a lot of question marks when it comes to these traditions. But be it as it may, let's assume that all of these things are correct. We still have some valid questions to ask. Which Quran would have been the complete one? The one that has 111? The one that has 116? And why does today's Quran has 114? Okay, so now I mean, to uh, some of you maybe do not know that, but I'm doing research on the manuscripts. And my own research is focused on the earliest Quranic manuscripts, which is known as the Sana'a manuscript. And this one actually is not a complete Quran. It only has a number of what we call folios, just a handful of them. It has a portion of the Quran in there. And if you compare this particular manuscript that I'm referring to. It's known as the Palimpsest, by the way. It's called Palimpsest, uh, P as in Paul, A as in Apple, L as in Luma, M as in Mike, I, um, uh, P, uh, S, E, S, T, because it was first written, then it was washed off, then they have another writing on top of it. So you have two layers of writings. 
one that faded away was washed off, the other one that is written on top of it, okay? So if you look at the lower layer using special lighting, ultraviolet lighting or special lighting, you begin to see the script you know, that is written. And when you look at that script and compare it to what we know today as the 1924 Quran, there are variations using basically the words of one of the scholars who worked on it. Her name is Asma Hilali. And she uses the word variations versus the word variance. Nevertheless, what I'm trying to say is, if that's the oldest Quran, we still don't have something that matches today's Quran. Whether you look at the claim that Ibn Mas'ud's Quran uh, was a complete one, he has 111 chapters. Or Ubay's Quran has 116 chapters. Or this oldest manuscript, it doesn't have the whole Quran, but it has a lot of variations. So, obviously, we cannot put our hands on something that dates all the way to the days of the prophet or right after his death immediately that matches what we have today perfectly, 100%. Now, here's why I bring this up. Because some of you might say, well, my goodness, the Bible have issues like this. I get it. No one really is making a big deal or a big fuss about this. We have thousands of manuscripts and fragments. By the time you put them all together and you begin to compare to what we have today, in fact, we have complete codices like Sinaiticus, for instance, and uh, Vaticanus, you know, these are complete, um, you know, codices. Some has all of the New Testament and most of the Old Testament. The other have all of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament. And then we have fragments and other discoveries. If you put them all together collectively, you know with certainty what we have received, basically. What is the revealed text uh, based on that? But no one really is making a big fuss and saying, Oh, yeah, since day one, we have a complete copy of the Bible, and it matches perfectly everything we have today. Again, God used humans to write it. But when we look at all of these evidence collectively, we know what we have received. We know that the Bible in our hand today matches what was revealed because of this mountain of evidence. Our Muslim friends wants us to believe, and wants themselves to believe also. Sadly, I can say they're deceiving themselves. To believe that what's in their hand today is an exact replica. And I repeat one more time, exact, that's a word that they would want themselves to believe and want others to believe. In other words, the Quran today is a perfectly preserved, complete Quran without a single error and anything that might be missing from it. Once you think this way, you have just shot yourself in the foot. Because all discoveries to date, when it comes to Quranic manuscripts, and especially the early ones dating in the 7th and 8th century, have so many variations that do not match today's Quran. This is why you've got to watch what you're saying, because otherwise you're going to put yourself in a serious predicament, as the case this time. Now, what do we mean by the 1924 Quran? Now, here is a brief history according to Islamic sources, by the way. The idea is that Muhammad was revealing the Quran by reciting it from memory. Some wrote it down, some memorized it. After his death, it became necessary for the Quran to be put together as a book by the first caliph. But then that copy was never used to be dupli uh, used uh, to make other copies from it. Then 20 years later, the third caliph decided that because of problems in different dialects, Arabic dialects in reading the Quran, then it becomes necessary now, uh, uh, basically, 
it becomes necessary for him to go back again and we uh, commission the same committee that wrote the first copy to Abu Bakr to write a second copy now, but this time he decided to use a specific dialect, that's the dialect of Quraysh as the primary one, and then after he made this copy, made copies from it supposedly and disseminated those copies all the way, all the way to nine different uh, provinces. That's again based on Islamic tradition. We don't have anything to substantiate this other what we are being told, okay? Nevertheless, the idea is that all these copies, we have two at least of them that exist today. One in Turkey, in Topkapi, basically, uh, uh, mansion, and the other one is found in Tashkand, in Samar uh, known as the Samarkand one. Supposedly, these are two of those copies. But even when you look at those, you will find differences. And they're not perfectly complete. The top copy one is the closest to being at least a complete Quran, the closest. I think it's 98 or 99%, but it has over 2,000 variations, meaning 2,000 differences from today's Quran. So you cannot use it uh, to say as a perfectly preserved Quran. So to get around that, between the 7th and the 9th century, we have what is called the science of readings. In other words, Different Arab people began to recite the Quran in their own tongues and dialects, and they would say certain words differently. And by the 9th century, a man by the name of Ibn Mujahid decided that he needed now to canonize the readings, and he settled on something called the seven readings. Later, they added three, became the ten readings, and later they added four, they became the fourteen readings. Anything outside of these fourteen canonized readings is considered to be a strange reading, they call it shawad, meaning it's heretical reading, it's not acceptable. Nevertheless, are you catching with me the dates? Everything that has to do with the Quran is always a later development. Uh, the top copy Quran that I told you is almost complete. It's an 8th century Quran, meaning 100 years after the time of the Prophet, at least. This tradition of standardizing it in seven different readings or dialects is 300 years almost after the time of Muhammad, and the list can go on and on and on. But then, those seven readings were based on seven, uh, you know, memorizers who recited it. And each one of these memorizers, according to the tradition, supposedly has two readers that were their students, that they will verify the reading. So you have, technically, if you're talking seven, you have, uh, you know, 14 different readers two per each dialect, a dialectical reading. One of those is known as Hafs, okay? Hafs read it from somebody by the name Asim, okay? And he is from the area of Mecca, Medina, technically, okay, in that region. Now, his reading is what we know today as the 1924 Cairo edition. Once again, why 1924? Because believe it or not, Al-Azhar commissioned the committee in 1924 to come up with what we know as the standardized Quran based on the readings of Hafs, okay? And since then, this Quran, the 1924, became the most popular Quran that is disseminated and distributed in the Muslim world and even around the world. Now, there are other readings that still exist. For instance, the readings in North Africa, not all of it is Hafs, it's known as Warsh. So it has various variations in terms of how things will pronounce. And the list can go on and on and on. 
but we know that the most popular one that was commissioned by Al-Azhar in 1924 and then later in the early 1930s, it was known as the Fuad, King Fuad, the King of Egypt, King Fuad edition. And then in 19, early 1980s, King Fahad of Saudi Arabia uh, also reprinted millions of this Quran and uh, started it till this day, uh, the operation of printing and distributing these Qurans for free. Okay, so why is that important? If you open a Bible, the ASV or the NIV or the NASB, you will see at the introduction section a mention of a translation committee and also a mention of which manuscripts were used by the translation committees. When it comes to the 1924 Cairo edition, there are no manuscripts that were used. It was mainly using the readings of Hafs that was passed down by memory, orally. Now, here's another problem with that. Hafs, there are five different traditions about Hafs that we know of, and Hafs has been accused of fabricating uh, passages and fabricating other things as well, uh, you know, in terms of his own life. Uh, so he's not really a trustworthy person. And therefore, we have a problem here, but by the reliance on a questionable character and also being uh, the idea that his own readings was passed down orally, not in a written form, since no manuscript was being utilized. So, with that said, the 1924 Quran, believe it or not, becomes the standard today that scholars and everybody who's doing studies on the early Quranic manuscripts used to compare and contrast and tell you. So if a scholar is studying one of these early manuscripts and say, these early manuscripts have variations or variants in it, variant readings, that means they have compared it to the 1924 Quran, and they're telling you if you compare it to the Cairo edition Quran, then we have differences in phrases or words or pronunciations. And that leads me to the next point also that I want to point out to you. And no pun intended when I say point out. Because the Quran, since it was written the first time until almost 150 years later, in other words, in the middle to the end of the 8th century, the Quran was revealed in, by the way, the late 7th century, uh, early, uh, um, I should say, middle to late 7th century. And now, after the death of the Prophet, finally we have a Quran that is in written form as a codex, but it didn't have pointings, dots, and didn't have diacritical marking to mark the vowels, okay? The syllables and the vowels are not marked or distinguished. And that's a very dangerous thing in a Semitic language like the Arabic or the Hebrew. If you do not put vowel markations or pointings, you can read the word in different ways, and it could have many meanings, and it could even change uh, in cases. It could be a noun sometimes, become also a verb or an adjective, and that's the case with the Quran. That's where we get this idea and the problem of variant readings. That's what supposedly the second caliph discovered, uh, the third caliph discovered Uthman and decided to formalize it into the Quraysh, which is the readings of Mecca. And uh, as a result of this, uh, it was disseminated that way. Uh, which, by the way, we have other things to say about that, but, but that's when we start this series, which, Lord willing, I'll be doing this, but I'm going to wait until me and Dr. J. Smith meet again in studio uh, in late, uh, basically, um, uh, springtime and do more series on the Quran, 
and basically we'll unfo uh, unpack this for you in the forms of videos and also I'll follow up with my own podcast as well. So with that said, I want us now to um, begin to think about the devastating impact of such practice. First, you have a modern Quran that is based on oral transmissions. How often do you think this oral transmission that lasted for 13 to 1400 years would have been perfectly preserved and accurate? How can you even verify that? Number two, we know for a fact when we compare this reading to early Quranic manuscripts that there are differences between this modern reading and early Quranic manuscripts, whether they have the dottings or they don't. We know sometimes the rasm, the structure of the word itself varies. Not to mention when, you, when they established the pointing and the dotting system in the middle to late 8th century, we have differences in pronunciations as well, which lead into differences in also uh, the meaning. I mean, I'll give you just some examples. In some of these manuscripts, we see that uh, there is a command, uh, the word kol, meaning say. The same word is found, uh, for instance, uh, sometimes in the 1924 as a past tense, kal, meaning he said. Just that difference between a, an imperative to a past tense. Big difference. Theologically speaking, who is, if, if it is kol, the mean, meaning say, an imperative, that means it's God who's saying this, commanding somebody. But if it is saying kal, meaning said, past tense, then it's reporting to us something that happened in the past. Does it apply to today? Who was saying it back then? Allah or the Prophet or somebody else? So you can see the, uh, basically the negative impact uh, towards that. Another thing. When you have a committee that decides in 1924 that the Quran finally needs to be standardized in something known as the 1924 edition, what does that tell us about the history of the Quran then? Are they not satisfied with the way the Quran made it for 13 to 1400 years by that time? Are they saying that they did not really feel that they can trust the other readings and other uh, uh, variant uh, text readings, basically, and writings that existed? There are many Qurans that are in writing, many early Quranic manuscripts. They still do not match each other perfectly, but we have a lot of them. So that tells us that the Quran as we know it today, in no way, in no way can be an exact replica of the Quran that supposedly was revealed for the first time, or after the death of the Prophet, or after the end of the first century Islam, almost 100 years after pa the passing of the prophet and also his companions. So this is why I had that post on my Facebook recently asking that question, what was it based on and do you know that it was based on oral transmission? And I'm hoping that my Muslim friends will take heed of that and realize that there is some serious problem here since this is going to impact the theology of the Quran, the understanding of the Quran, the preservation of the Quran, the so-called completeness of the Quran and its origin, supposedly from heaven. Which way the Quran was revealed from heaven? Was it revealed according to the earliest Quranic manuscript? Was it revealed according to the 111 chapters of Ibn Mas'ud? Was it revealed according to the 116 chapters of Ubay? Was it revealed according to the 8th century, almost complete, top copy Quran? Or was it revealed according to the 1924 uh, Cairo edition? 
All of these are serious questions that we ask and we pray that our Muslim friends will take heed of, will take notice of, they'll do their own research. Our job is to bring it up to their attention, give them the resources that are available. My videos, by the way, you can go to Sira International on YouTube. We have a channel known as Sira International, and in there, we have done a number of series, myself and Dr. Jay Smith. Last year, we called it the Quran's Many Problems, and in there, you can begin to get an exposure to this serious topic. So we encourage you to go and become a subscriber in YouTube to our uh, YouTube channel known as Sira International. And we also encourage you to prayerfully consider becoming a supporter also through that. We have something called Patreon. You can uh, sign up with Patreon and become a patron and give as little as $1 as much as the Lord put in your hand. And that way we can utilize this income to develop more of these videos and stay on the air and uh, provide you with these resources. We thank you again for your partnership with us, and we ask you to prayerfully consider uh, to be a long-term supporter of our ministry, Sierra International. Until we meet again, have a blessed day. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.